The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Horsehead Gang It was the 26th of February 1941 when Eastern Airlines Flight 21 was making its approach to what is now called Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport in Georgia. The DC-3 had departed LaGuardia Airport in New York, stopped briefly at Hoover Field in Washington before starting its next leg to Atlanta. It was the airline's flying procedure at the time to set the aircraft's two altimeters on different settings. One would be on QNH, showing the height above sea level, and the other on QFE, indicating height above the airfield. Since the weather wasn't good, with a low cloud base, rain and some fog, it was vital that the pilots set their altimeters correctly, as they couldn't see the ground. On board were 13 passengers and three crew members, as the four-month-old aircraft approached the Stone Mountain radio fix and received their clearance. Clear to Atlanta Tower, number one to approach. Flight 21 changed frequency and reported overhead Stone Mountain descending. They called at 1,800 feet above mean sea level over the Atlanta range station about two miles southeast of the airport and their dispatcher called them suggesting a straight-in approach. The acknowledgement was the last transmission heard from Flight 21. The airfield lies 915 feet above sea level. Out of the gloom of thick cloud through their windscreens, the pilots suddenly saw the tops of pine trees, but it was too late to pull up. They ploughed through them as the branches smashed into the left wing, shattering the navigation light. They managed to continue on for another quarter of a mile in a more or less strain-level attitude until they struck more trees on the gently climbing terrain and then impacted into a thick pine grove which demolished the aircraft, tearing off both wings. The fuselage rolled inverted, coming to rest above the right engine. One of the passengers on board was the president of the airline. Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, who had felt the first impact as a bump and had jumped up from his seat and started to move aft until the final impact threw him off his feet. He suffered grave injuries and found himself trapped by the wreckage and soaked in aviation fuel. Around him were the dead and dying and he called out into the darkness. It was close to midnight trying to offer consolation to the dying and encouraging the survivors to find help. It was nearly seven hours later as the first glimmer of dawn came when the rescuers found the wreckage. Rickenbacker was barely alive, but still conscious and in terrible pain, but so severe and grotesque were his injuries that he was left for dead whilst the ambulance took away the living and then returned for the bodies of the deceased. When he wasn't among the survivors that arrived at the hospital, the press reported his death. 
they were uncomfortably close to the truth. When his body was eventually extracted and taken to the hospital, he was indeed left for dead, and he heard the doctors telling their assistants to leave him and take care of the live ones. It was hardly surprising. His head had been crushed, fracturing his skull and smashing his face such that his eyeball was blown from its socket. His left elbow was shattered and the nerves crushed, paralysing his left hand. He had several broken ribs, a broken hip socket and two breaks in his pelvis, damaged nerves in his leg and a broken left knee. Afterwards, Rickenbacker would describe his terrible experience with vivid accounts of his mental state as he approached his end, emphasising the supreme act of will it took to stave off dying. However, he was better off than the eight who did die. Five passengers, including a senator, and all three crew. The Civil Aeronautics Board found no evidence of aircraft failure and concluded that the DC-3 was being flown at too low an altitude. The captain had descended his aircraft to a height of 39 feet below that of the airfield and as a result contacted the trees which brought it down. The reason for this error was discovered when the altimeters were inspected and it revealed that the one they used to gauge their height at that point on the approach was misset by nearly an inch of mercury, putting them at least 800 feet lower than they should have been. No explanation for this error could be found, but as Rickenbacker had said, I have never liked to use the word safe in connection with either Eastern Airlines or the entire transportation field. I prefer the word reliable. Edward Vernon Rickenbacker would eventually recover, but after learning a little about his life, I wasn't surprised. He was a man who rose from very humble beginnings to become a famous racing driver the United States' greatest fighter pilot of World War I and would be awarded the Medal of Honor before becoming the head of one of the state's most successful airlines. Indeed, his lifetime of achievement is, in truth, way too hard to fit into a 20-minute tale. Born of Swiss immigrants in 1890, his father was a wage labourer for breweries and street paving gangs. His mother supplemented the income by taking in laundry. Eddie grew up as a street kid, but he helped the family out by earning nickels by delivering papers, setting pins up in the bowling alley, and selling stuff he scavenged to the junk man. He worked on the family plot, growing vegetables and looking after the animals, but he used a little of his own money to buy Bull Durham tobacco and was the leader of sorts of the local gang. With the others of the Horsehead gang, he smoked, played hooky and got a reputation as a bit of a hooligan. He was trouble-prone, falling in front of a streetcar, tumbling twelve feet into an open cistern, flying a bicycle from the roof of a barn, smashing street lamps, falling from a quarry cart and slicing his leg wide open. He had a sensitive side, though. He yearned to turn his love of art, in particular painting watercolours, into a career, but he also had a love of machines. 
His childhood came to an abrupt end when his father got into an argument and was struck in the face with a shovel. After six weeks in a coma, he died. Along with his older brother and sister, Eddie felt obliged to help replace his father's income. He dropped out of school and worked full-time at a variety of jobs. One was with Oscar Lear Automobiles, and at the same time he took an engineering correspondence course. The chief engineer took the young teenager under his wing and brought him to New York to compete as his riding mechanic in the Vanderbilt Racing Cup. Sadly, an accident and car problems meant they didn't even make the start line, but within a few years, Eddie moved with him to another company as chief testing engineer. Within a few short years, Rickenbacker was demonstrating cars in big motor shows and troubleshooting problems. At 18, he described himself as Salesman, demonstrator, mechanic, chief engineer, experimenter. In short, the whole ball of wax. This led to an invitation to compete in races. Indeed, he was the relief driver for the very first Indianapolis 500, helping his boss take 11th place. Before long, racing was his full-time occupation, and he worked for a number of teams. Not always keeping to the safety regulations, he was given a 12-month ban, but success followed and he was soon a national racing figure, earning the nickname Fast Eddie. 1915, he finished the season fifth amongst all racers, with three top podium finishes, and the following year he rose to third place. Then he signed with the British Sunbeam team and travelled to Britain to compete. Deep into a four-year war, he was kept under surveillance by Scotland Yard as a potential spy following a ridiculous story by the LA Times calling Eddie the disowned son of a Prussian noble. Staying in the luxurious Savoy Hotel, he watched the Royal Flying Corps fly from the nearby Brooklyn's aerodrome, and he yearned to join them. He had friends in the world of aviation, such as Glenn Martin, the aircraft maker, and Townsend Dodd, who became General Pershing's aviation officer. However, his working-class background held him back, and his efforts to form an aero squadron out of racing drivers came to nothing. Unexpectedly, in 1917, he was invited to go to France to drive for General Pershing as a sergeant first class, and he soon found himself chauffeuring officials around Paris and the Western Front. It was whilst fixing a car for Lieutenant Colonel Billy Mitchell that he hoped to get his chance to become a pilot, but it was a different encounter with a Captain James Miller that led him to become the chief engineer at an American military flight school he was starting. Eddie bargained and agreed to come if he could have the chance to learn to fly at the French flight school near Toul first. His perseverance paid off, and, now promoted, he arrived at the new U.S. Air Services Flight School with 25 hours in the air. Rickenbacker didn't fit the mould of the average aviation cadet. 
He resented their cocky college attitude, and they resented his rough manner and speech. He stood in the back at classes, but absorbed all that he could, and then, in between his duties as chief engineer, he stole into the air to practice. As his experience grew, he finagled his way into gunnery school and then completed his advanced training under the tutelage of the famous Raoul Lefbury. Finally, he made his way into the nascent 94th Pursuit Squadron, the Hat in the Ring Gang. Only two weeks later, Rickenbacker shot down his first enemy aircraft, and it only took him another month to get his fifth and become an ace, as well as being awarded the French Croix de Guerre. This success did not mean the end of his difficulties, however. Several times he almost fired on friendly planes. He nearly crashed when the fabric on his Newport's wing tore off in a dive and his guns kept jamming whenever he went in for the kill. Illness kept him on the ground for a while, but when he returned, he was picked to command the squadron. Rickenbacker's talent as a leader came to the fore, and his men soon realised that he was a guy who would stick with them to the end. He led his unit to success after success, and his personal count of victories grew as well. He flew more patrols and more hours than any other pilot in the service, and in the final six weeks of the conflict, flying his much-loved Spad 13, he brought down 15 enemy aircraft, bringing his total to 26, making him the United States' Ace of Aces. When hearing of the imminent armistice, he flew over no man's land, and later wrote, I was the only audience for the greatest show ever presented. On both sides of No Man's Land, the trenches erupted. Brown uniform men poured out of the American trenches, gray-green uniforms out of the German, and from my observer seat overhead, I watched them throw their helmets in the air, discard their guns, wave their hands. By the end of the conflict, he had earned eight distinguished service crosses, the Legion of Honor, and would later receive the Medal of Honor, the United States' highest and most prestigious military decoration. He returned to the States a hero and was met at the Waldorf Astoria by hundreds of friends and admirers and by the Secretary of War. He accepted a book deal worth $25,000 and a speaking tour for $10,000. He retired a major, but always preferred to be called Captain Eddie. The world was his oyster, and his name so well known that to have it on a letterhead could almost guarantee the success of a venture. He took part in promotional flights, crossing the country several times in Junkers Larsen, JL-6s and DH-4s, but not without a few problems. He suffered seven crashes, eight forced landings and nine near misses. He diversified into motor car manufacturer, starting the Rickenbacker Motor Company, marketed as a car worthy of its name. 
He also purchased the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and became the Vice President of Sales for the Aircraft Corporation of America and then Vice President for Governmental Relations at American Airways. However, his most lasting association was as the President of Eastern Airlines. He led his company through great changes to civil aviation as Eastern moved from a piston-powered fleet of Constellations, DC-4s, 6s and 7s into the jet age, not forgetting that a war intervened. After initially supporting America's isolation from the European conflict, he became openly pro-British, saying that he was inspired by England's heroic resistance to relentless air attacks, and saying that should these gallant British withstand the terrific onslaught of the totalitarian states by the summer of 1941, it is my sincere conviction that by that time, this nation will have declared war. Barely recovered from the awful injuries he suffered in the Atlanta DC-3 crash, Rickenbacker undertook a tour of Europe and the Pacific Theater on behalf of the Secretary of War. It was during this mission that the B-17 he was flying in became lost and was forced to ditch in a remote part of the Central Pacific Ocean. For 24 days, he, his companion on the tour, and the eight crewmen floated in life rafts with little chance of survival. Several of them were injured, and when the food ran out after only three days, they struggled to stay alive. Rickenbacker assumed a leadership role, encouraging and browbeating the others to keep their spirits up, but one man died from drinking seawater out of desperation. They lived on sporadic falls of rainwater and occasional birds and fish that they caught. The Navy gave up the search, and again Eddie was declared dead. Finally, they split up and rowed their fragile rafts off to discover islands that would eventually lead them to a radio. They all survived, but were in terrible condition suffering from hypothermia, sunburn, dehydration, and near starvation. The story of his ordeal has been used as an example for Alcoholics Anonymous when the first of their 12 traditions was formulated. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon unity. In the 50s, Rickenbacker's time with Easton came to an end as its fortunes declined and he finally resigned from the board at the age of 73. A few years later, he died from a stroke whilst visiting Switzerland. His body was laid to rest in his hometown, and his eulogy read by Lieutenant General Jimmy Doolittle. Although his name lives on in halls of fame, awards, airfield names, on postage stamps, and as a hero of a great nation. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you like the idea of Plane Tales continuing on and prospering, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? And my thanks yet again to voiceover artist Greg Willits. He can be found at gregwillits.com. <laughs>